My name is Wizzy Brown. And I'm Bryant McDowell. And I'm Molly Keck. And we're with the Texas A&M AgriLife Extension Service Department of Entomology, and this is Bugs by the Yard, where we hope to increase your enthusiasm about bugs in the urban landscape. Welcome back to Bugs by the Yard. This episode, we're going to be covering um, one of the three ways that insects can be beneficial. I think that if you've listened to us long enough, you know that we're all about um, really explaining how insects aren't always necessarily the bad guys every single time. And there's definitely ways that insects can be good. I think they say that less than 5% of the known species of insects are actually harmful, which leaves a ton of species that are either beneficial or neutral, which means they're neither bad or good. So who cares? You know, why, why hurt them live and let live in that situation. And so if you are a beneficial insect, you will fall under one of three categories. You're either going to be a predator or assassin or parasitoid. The killers are one category. They, you might be a pollinator, which everyone's aware of, or you could be a decomposer slash recycler. Um, and today we're going to be talking about predators, parasitoids, or the um, assassins, the killers, the guys that predate upon and kill the bad bugs that we maybe don't want in the landscape. And I'm sure we'll talk about some that kill things that maybe we do want, but nature's not always nice as Wizzy says. And just like that mountain lion might kill that cute deer that you're trying to feed in your front yard. That's just part of nature. And so sometimes the good things get eaten along with the bad. So I guess probably the first thing to do is start out and explain the difference between a predator and a parasitoid. And I'll give my definition of it. And I, y'all may correct me or, or have a different way to say it, but I always explain it that a predator is actively hunting for its prey, might be ambushing it, might be sitting in wait and grabbing it, but they're, they're looking for prey. Their food is usually no larger than they are. They're going to consume it whole or consume most of it and kill it. It's not, they're not going to leave it alive. Whereas a parasitoid, these are generally very small insects that you may not even realize are out and about in your landscape. And they utilize their host to complete their own life cycle. So they'll lay their eggs on or in a host, um, complete a portion of their life cycle, but keep that host alive and then once their life cycle has been completed, they will eventually kill that host. So it's like more of an internal type of uh, parasitizing thing as opposed to an outside eating up a bad guy kind of way to explain it. Is that how y'all generally explain the two? Yeah, those are my, I, I would say, yeah, a predator is directly consuming its prey um, and then Par the, the word parasitoid, right, comes from parasite. So an, a true parasite is going to live off of the host, but without killing it. The parasitoid is going to eventually kill it. And insects can be uh, variable in the time of death for the prey. So some of them are going to um, stun the prey and take it back to their uh nest site, uh, lay eggs on it. And right. That prey needs to stay alive for a while. So that way the larvae can feed. Um, but eventually it's going to 
die. And so that's why they're parasitoids. And then there's even hyperparasitoids or things that will parasitize <laughs> the, the parasitoid. Um, so th- those all are going to be specialized interactions. Well, usually when I talk about predators versus parasitoids, predators are going to capture and consume numerous prey items throughout their lifetime. Whereas when you're dealing with a parasitoid, it is one thing that they are consuming. Now, granted, the adult female that has been fertilized, she is going to be able to lay more than one egg. There's multiple eggs laid, but that one egg hatches out and that parasitoid consumes that particular host. It's not that they're eating a variety of things like predators do. Mm-hmm. Isn't is another aspect of that um, providing provisions for your offspring would then be the parasitoid versus the predator is consuming it themselves? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, no, not necessarily because if you think about paper wasps, the adults oh, are true. going out and getting food, and they're providing that to the larvae. Bringing it With back the parasitoids, you're going to have you know, internal or external, so endo or ecto parasites, whether they're developing inside or outside. And those are, I don't know, generally, I mean, when they lay an egg in something, it hatches out and they kind of start eating the fat body inside of the insect. And then they kind of hold off eating anything that's important until they start reaching the end of their life cycle. Um, because you don't want that insect to die off right too soon, or, you know, you would die as well and not develop. So, you know, they're going to do that. But if you think about predators, I kind of have, I mean, you also have generalists and specialists there, but I have kind of three categories. I have like active hunters. So that would be things like, um, if you think about ladybird beetles or their larvae, they're actively out looking for aphids and they're wandering around. Um, We have ambushers. So a good example of that is an ambusher bug where they're hanging out on a plant waiting for something to come in and they will kind of, they ambush it, they they jump on it and they eat it. And then they have, I kind of split this into a different one because it's a little bit weird and I call them the trappers. And I think about antlion larvae Mm -hmm. when I think about that. So they've got that little sandy pit that the larvae is at the bottom of. And so they built that pit to trap things. And so it falls down in that pit and they're just kind of waiting for that food to come into them. Yeah. I guess maybe that's another way to ambush things. They're just building a trap. I I don't know. So then would you call a sit and wait predator kind of an ambusher? Like, because they, because like if you think of a praying mantis, they sit, they don't actively hunt, they sit and they wait, Yeah, but they know where to go to get the most opportunities. Exactly, yeah. They're, they're hanging out where the bugs are going to be coming in. Yeah. Um, so, so you mentioned generalists and specialists and I had like a going list in my mind, um, of all of the predators that I could think of. And then you literally named like three more that I didn't even think of because there's just so many of them. So we're going to not say somebody's favorite predator, I'm sure. And we're not doing that on purpose. Um, it's just that we could go on and on, I, I think, and it'd get pretty boring if you wanted us to talk about all of them. But some of the, so a generalist predator would be one that doesn't care about what it eats. It's just going to eat anything that comes in its way that 
it can utilize as a food source versus specialists, which are a little bit more specialized in what they feed on. Maybe like ladybugs are only really going, well, I don't want to say they only go after aphids, but that's one of their preferred food sources. So specialists are probably more of a gardener's friend because you know what they're feeding on and you feel good about leaving them around versus generalists could go after some of those pretty butterflies if they catch them. Or, you know, you can even see, I once took a really cool video of a praying mantis eating a monarch butterfly. And I was on a trail in a park and it was on its, the, the praying mantis must've fallen out of a tree or something. It was laying on its back while it was consuming this monarch, which was as it was being eaten alive, was moving its poor little legs around. So, I mean, to me, that was amazing. I thought it was so cool to see in video this, and I wasn't going to stop it from happening, but to somebody else who loves their monarchs, they might say, well, kill the stupid, you know, praying mantis because, you know, they're hurting a beneficial insect. But again, nature's not always nice. So a generalist doesn't have a brain to know only eat the things we don't want them to. It's going to eat whatever it wants to. So some of the generalists that I think of in my mind are things like, um, Praying mantises are like, at least in the the world of entomology, they're known um, generalists because they just don't really care what they eat. And people love them and they're really cool to see. And I enjoy seeing them, but they're not just eating your bad bugs. Um, Spiders, I would say are generalists, but many times they will camp out, at least the ambushers will camp out inside of flowers to try to grab things. But of course you could have pollinators that show up there. And then, um, then there are assassin bugs. I consider them generalists. Um, once I saw, especially this time of year, go out somewhere and where the prickly pears are, are the bowl flowers are wide open. Um, you can see everything that's happening inside of there are other wildflowers that have a big open bowl shaped flower. Take a peek. Um, cause I bet you'll see predators, pollinators, um, all sorts of things inside of that flower at one time. And I was able to one time catch an assassin bug that ate is that was eating. Um, I think it was a sweat bee, but it 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 came in to go after the pollen, and the assassin bug caught him. And um, you know, nature nature was doing its thing. Um, but what else is and and if you and an assassin bug is related to stink bugs, but the difference between them and a sap sucking stink bug to me is that their heads are very very thin because they have to actively hunt for their prey. So you kind of have to think they need a neck and the sap sucking stink bugs, their head just kind of melts right into their shoulders. They just have a big wide head webbed neck. Um, uh, so that's, and you usually only find like one or two assassin bugs in one spot versus stink bugs or other true bugs that are bad will tend to cluster or aggregate. Um, and what else, I mean, what else are some other. Uh, lacewing larvae or generalists, I think. Yeah, they are generalists, but I tend to think that they, so I also think of the size of them since they're little, they generally will eat things little too. And most of those little things on plants are bad guys, but yeah, I guess they are generalists, but they generalize the things that I don't want to be on my plants. (laughs) I guess paper wasps are kind of generalists as well. They're, you know, if, if they're sting you and you don't want them, then by all means kill that nest. But if they don't bother you know that they're eating lots of caterpillars out of the trees and other generally like juicier, softer insects that they might be able to collect off of plants and things. You mentioned big eyed bugs. I guess that's kind of in in the realm of the assassins as well. 
Yeah, I guess. Yeah. They're, they're not truly assassin bugs, I suppose. Right. But they are in the true bug family. So there's big eyed bugs. There's ambush bugs like Wizzy mentioned. Um, there are so many of them. Wheel and bugs. Yeah. Wheel bugs, which will bite you too. If you put your hand underneath it, all of these things, while they're not trying to feed off of you, you know, if you grabbed it, if they would probably bite, but I always say if a giant grabbed me, I would struggle and try to bite and get away too. And then some of the specialists I think are ladybugs the, and then really solitary wasps are going to be pretty specialized like the tarantula hawks. Yeah. Any of the spider wasps, cricket wasps. Then like cicada killer wasps, they specialize in just killing cicadas. And I guess we're kind of getting into that parasitoid realm as well with a lot of those so they're knocking down their prey but as a provision for their young yeah that's true actually but it's already dead it's kind of like this gray area yeah there is kind of a gray area that's true i never really thought about that i always just thought i was very black and white thinking oh they're only predators but you're right they are somewhere in between. Is it because their prey, they killed the prey first and gave it to their offspring that would make them more of a predator than a parasitoid? I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, it, well, I guess it depends on how you look at it, but that's kind of how I would parse it. <laughs> I mean, for, yeah, for us, we'll say it that way. Someone taking a class on this is like, no, you're saying it all wrong. <laughs> and then I, a couple other ones that I always think of as good not maybe good predators, but being a predator are surfid flies. Those are out and about right now. Um, surfid flies, AKA hoverflies. The adults I think are primarily pollinators, but their larvae are uh, predators. And um, they kind of look like greenish, clearish, maybe brownish color, depending, I guess what species it is blobs. Um, they don't really to me, they almost don't have a defined shape to them because when they move, they kind of like move into themselves and then stretch out again. Kind of like a slug. They like scrunch up and then yes. stretch out, but they're not slimy. Bitty, 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 tiny slugs. Like if they're eating aphids and they're only like maybe three times the size of an aphid, just to think about how small they are, maybe bigger than that, I guess. Um, and robber flies, those are kind of generalists, except for the the bee mimicking robber fly, bumblebee mimicking robber fly usually will go after bees um, and they eat a lot of them. It seems like bumblebees and, and honeybees also. Uh, I always see there's a there's a local commercial beekeeper and they will often post things on social media and they hate robber flies because they'll eat up, they'll gobble up all the honeybees as they come in and out of the hive, but then they love their praying mantises. And I'm like, I guess it's the fact that the robber flies eat more maybe than a praying mantis does in a day that makes them hate them. But you can certainly see praying mantises eating uh, honeybees as well. I've definitely collected praying mantids and then um, other assassin bugs. And I'll put all of my insects in, in what we call like a kill jar, but yeah, you, you get home and you're going through your insect collection and then you realize that some of your insects have actually been like eaten or torn apart by <laughs> by the other ones that you've yes. put in with them. Which is so funny that that natural instinct to eat for them is so much stronger than the why am I in a jar and I, you know, trapped right. and I can't get out. 
you'd think that they'd be more concerned with their survival than, or maybe that is part of their survival. I'm in a weird situation. I need to eat as much as I can in case I can't. Yeah. Another weird reaction is the like expelling all of their eggs. Like that was another common. Yeah. On another note. (laughs) I have had before where I had a little praying mantis oatheca, a little egg case, and I had it in a um, little cage and it hatched. And I had like 30 of the most adorable bugs you've ever seen in your life. And then I don't know what I was thinking, but I just kind of left them all in there, like to show people. And very, very quickly, like within a matter of days, I very soon just had one very fat praying mantis baby left because they ate their brothers and sisters. So that's, uh, they don't, this is kind of related. I'm so sorry. I'm going off on a tangent, but we talked about, um, lace wings. And if you've ever seen lace wing eggs, how they're laid on like a stalk. So you'll see like a nice thread with at the very tip of it, um, an, an egg. And usually you'll find a line of them together. Um, and that's essentially because they're so voracious as, as immatures, they will consume whatever they can, uh, that's their size or smaller. But, uh, if they weren't laid on that stalk, right, the very first one that would hatch out would then go and eat all of its brothers and sisters. So it's kind of a delay mechanism, uh, to ensure that the, uh, the offspring are surviving and, and not, you know, feeding on one another, that they're going to find another food source elsewhere. I'm trying to think of some other uh, predators that are insects. I'm looking at my collection um, that we're missing out on, and I'm not sure that I can. Well, there's lots of uh, beetles. I would say beetles, ground beetles. Oh, tiger beetles, ground beetles. We're thinking the same thing, all of us. Tiger beetles. Um, caterpillar hunter beetles, ground beetles, not an insect, but your scorpions, um, tarantulas, vinegaroons, centipedes, centipedes, while maybe they frighten you because they can sting or bite. Um, and nature, they're doing what they're supposed to do and they're eating other insects and helping keep those numbers in check. There's also some, um, orthopterans, some grasshoppers that are predatory, there's the red-eyed devil is what I call them. I don't know if they have another common name, but they will come out and about every so often. It's not every single summer that I have people send me pictures of them, but it seems like when I do have a picture, I know I'm going to get others. And it's been a while since I've seen pictures of them, but they're um, very large, spiky, bright green colored uh, uh, grasshoppers and very obviously a grasshopper, but they have red eyes with it with, with what looks like a pupil inside of the eye. And it cannot be a pupil because they don't have eyes like we do with pupils, but they are mean, uh, mean things. And they will actually chew through window screens to get to whatever insect might be hiding in the window screen if they're desperate enough for food. And if you are unlucky enough to put your finger at its mouth, it, I am sure it would break skin. Um, but have y'all ever seen red eye devils? Is it, is it like a central Texas thing or I have not, but I want to look it up. I've seen them. Yeah. And it usually it's like they, there are years where you only see like one or two. And then there's years where we just have tons of them. Yeah. Oh yeah. Another common name is the giant Texas Katie did. Yes. Yes. It is a type. It's actually a true, it's a type of Katie did not, not truly a grasshopper, but it's in the 
southwestern United States. Well, there's some predaceous stink bugs. Oh, yes. And yeah, some of those. And there's some thrips that are predators and dragonflies. Dragonflies and damselflies. Oh, yeah. Dragonflies in both the adult and the immature stages. Sometimes earwigs can be predaceous on little caterpillars and stuff. I bet there, I mean, there's probably more examples if we went through every order, like from most primitive to more complex, I bet we'd come up with hundreds of others. The point being, there's lots of predators out there that not all insects are bad. Um, And if you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure that's, you understand that. And that hopefully maybe is one of the reasons why you do listen, but lots and lots of predatory insects that are keeping maybe bad insects or even not so bad insect numbers in check. And then we've got parasitoids. And uh, if you are into sci-fi stuff, then do some research on parasitoids because these are like aliens. The stories that we're going to say are going to, I hope they blow your mind. Maybe they make you bored, but um, parasitoids are odd things. And I did a, I bet Wizzy probably has a cataloged webinar about them too, but Back in 2020, when we couldn't do anything in person and everything was webinar based, um, we, I did a webinar on parasitoids and it's up on our YouTube channel called my extension, uh, 210, like extension as in AgriLife extension. And, um, so if you want to learn more about parasitoids and see some actual pictures of some, then, then go visit that. Do you have, have you done a webinar on parasitoids, Wizzy? Not specifically on them. No. I did because I was running out of ideas back then, (laughs) (laughs) but they, I mean, but that was like, when I got down that rabbit hole, it was, it's just, it's insane. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy. Even when we talk about parasitoids in camps, the kids, it blows their mind too. It's just a really cool, bizarre story. So again, these are insects that are going to lay their eggs on or in another insect and then develop inside of it and keep it alive until they're ready to complete their life cycle and eventually killing that bad bug for you. And at the very least, what they're doing is they're not that, that bad insect is not, or that harmful insect isn't feeding on the plant. You don't want it to feed on. It's not growing. It's not breeding, reproducing. It's not doing things to make more of itself, to make more damage happen to the plant. So not only will it die, it doesn't reproduce. And right now, if you have milkweed um, or any other plant and you've got some aphids, go look in your group of aphids because there are mummified aphids everywhere, like chock-a-block all on those plants. So a a mummified aphid is an aphid that has been um, parasitized by a little wasp that's only about the size of an aphid, lays its egg in the aphid, develops inside the aphid. So like, imagine being parasitized by something your size, about. And so it's eating. I don't know how they both fit in there. I don't know how it keeps the aphids alive long enough. And then after it's eaten the inside of the aphid and kills it, it will use that aphid skin uh, exoskeleton kind of has a pupil case. And then it, it like cuts a perfect circle, like a submarine hatch and it squeezes out mates and does the whole cycle all over again. And I think one female can lay I know she lays multiple eggs. I don't know exactly how many she lays, but my uh, my uh, uh, answer always to how many eggs are laid is 30. <laughs> so maybe she, one, one wasp could probably kill, you know, 20 to 30 other aphids on your plant. Maybe she lays more. I don't know. But those are some of my favorite ones. There's a wasp that will f- 
lay its eggs in the egg cases of American cockroaches, which are the very, very large cockroaches that fly, not at you, although sometimes it seems like it. And these wasps, um, and so the, their babies will eat the cockroaches before they become, before they even hatch. But they are called Evaneid wasps or ensign wasp. Like it's the flag. Yeah. The little flag. It refers to the abdomen. Oh, that makes sense because they have like a little, you know, someone once described it to me as a, uh, it looks like some, a, a cross between a cricket and a wasp. And it does because they kind of have these enlarged femurs and back legs that are like cricket like, but then they have the skinny little waist and the abdomen that knobs at the end that is typical of a wasp. But what they, they often will bob that up and down. And I think that to me, it like catches your eye on the, on the wall or something. And that's, I think when most people notice them, um, but they're like a blue, black, kind of a pretty colored wasp. And if you see them in your office or other places or your house, it indicates that you've got to have American cockroaches close by because that's either where it came from or where it's trying to lay its eggs or any of the larger cockroaches. They can also do smoky Brown. They could do Australian. Um, It's just Americans are normally their one. And you only get for the Evaneids, you only get one wasp per Ootheca. There's another tiny wasp. Uh, that one's a prostacetus haganawi. That's what I did my master's paper on. And that one is a little t tiny wasp. And you can get anywhere from, you know, 20 to 250 wasps coming out of an oothika. How many eggs does an Evanid wasp lay? Uh, multiple eggs. So they can lay, well, it depends on how many oothika yeah. that they find. Because usually you don't yeah. have them. You know, you don't have oothika like cluster yeah, unless together. it's a bad infestation. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, theoretically, one oh, Evaneid wasp could kill many, many, many cockroaches, or it could prevent. Actually, yeah. it's exponential, right? Because how many cockroaches are in an egg case? Isn't it close to twenty something? Oh yeah, uh, anywhere from fifteen yeah. to thirty. Yeah. Um, one time, I went into. I don't know why I went into this house. To be quite honest with you, but I was with a a pest management company. And we were, I was with them for this inspection of this house and they had, it was an old home that had been kind of abandoned for a long time. And so there was major moisture issues, major humidity, and they had an infestation of American cockroaches. Like you imagine in really, really rundown apartments and motels and things of German cockroaches, like that many. I'm thinking creep show. You remember that creep show one where they had all the roaches everywhere? <laughs> but it like when we walked in, it had a smell to it, like a cockroach lab oh, does. Mm-hmm. Before I ever saw anything, I was like, there's cockroaches here. But there were Evaneid wasps everywhere. I mean, I had to have seen hundreds of them because there were that many cockroaches. Like they were, wow. the house had just not been in long enough and holes and things. And ugh, it was, it was crazy. And I'm like, well, they're trying to help. So I guess leave those wasps alone. I want to say another common parasitoid that I think of is the the decapitating flies with fire ants uh, that were introduced, uh, which similarly, one it's a one for one. So the fly is going to very sneakily lay an egg um, on a fire ant. The larvae is going to develop in the body of the ant, basically eating everything that's not 
needed for it to survive. And then I think once it gets to like the third instar or something, there's like a special time where the larvae has to make its way through the like thorax head canal. <laughs> so if it's too big, if, if it's developed beyond that point, it won't be able to get to the head. Um, so it makes its way to the head. The head falls off, hence their name, decapitating flies, uh, and they pupate there. Uh, and then, so I guess that's how they were initially introduced was they would get these ants that they knew had eggs in them, wait for the heads to fall off, gather all the heads up uh, and and take them with them to then mm-hmm. rear out uh, adult flies. That's like, those are yeah, forward, flies, forward right? flies. I've released, I think three different species, maybe just two. Um, Wizzy, I'm sure you've released at least a couple too. And I don't remember, there's some species that um, the best way to introduce the flies is to either collect fire ants, ship them off to the USDA, they get them parasitized, ship them back to you, and you re-release your fire ants back to their respective colonies. It's a lot of like good note taking. And then, but the other way to do it was they would just bring, they would just ship me heads. And then I would just put those on the colonies, I think. Was that, do you, did you ever do any releases, Wizzy? Yeah. Dump them, dump them yeah. on the, the colony. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'd go back and like, <laughs> you had cattle prods, modified <laughs> cattle prods to like give them a little electric shock. And then, so it would get the fire ants to come out and something about that shock irritating the fire ants released something that the forward flies were attracted to. And then you would just observe and watch and see if you saw them hovering around the the mounds. I mean, as I'm saying this, I'm like, that was really funny what we did to try to release these things. We should actually um, maybe have Robert on to talk about forward flies because he did a whole lot of research on this. If if y'all listen to our um, our other podcast, which is no longer, but uh, Unwanted Guests, Dr. Robert Puckett did a lot of work on decapitating forward flies for his PhD and his postdoc. I think one of the coolest parasitoids though, is the ones that you mentioned them, Bryant, they've got, um, ichneumon wasps where they have real, they seem very, very, um, flimsy, like little ovipositors, Mm -hmm. very long ovipositors actually, but I guess they're strong enough that they can kind of drill into cracks or, or push all the way through bark. And they like, how on earth this wasp knows where to inject its ovipositor so that it's going to touch a wood boring beetle or caterpillar or something, and then lay its eggs through the bark and into that moving around other insect that it can't see is, I mean, that's insane. Uh, Tachinid flies are another parasitoid, Oh yeah, uh, a fun one. And they parasitize a lot of things um, from caterpillars, beetles to sawflies, true bugs, grasshoppers. Is that what, what is, what is the one that, does the hornworms? Oh, I was just trying to find that. Where and so what Wizzy's mentioning, if you guys ever had tomato hornworms on your plants and you've got that one that's big fat and then just has a bunch of it looks like it's got white maggots just yeah. Yeah. Hopping out of it. It oh, those okay. are braconid wasps. Braconids. Braconids are the ones that look like yeah. transformers, right? They've got the giant thighs. I thought that was the chalcid. Chalcid. Oh no! Oh, you're right. Chalcids. Yeah, chalcids. Chalcids. Yeah. 
Yeah. So if you, I mean, everyone grows tomatoes in Texas, it seems like, but if you've got tomatoes in your veggie garden, I always tell people, if you find a hornworm that looks, that has little white, um, kind of, I don't know, like little white spindles almost. Yes. Yes. All on its back. And there's gotta be, I mean, when you look at pictures of them, there's gotta be more than 30 on the back, leave it alone because those are actually pupa. And the crazy thing to me is that a wasp has come and laid all those eggs inside of a tomato hornworm. And all of those little things are eating the tomato hornworm from the inside, but keeping it alive. Like, like the, the balance of that is mind blowing to me that it's still alive. And then they've, once they have finished eating all they want to eat and they're ready to become a pupa, they bust through that tomato hornworm's body and spin their pupa case or make their pupa case. And what you see is not actually eggs. It's the pupa that have already fed on it from the inside. So while it's being fed on, it's obviously not feeling very good and it's not eating, but leave it because then you'll have that many more wasps to continue that same cycle in your garden. Hopefully. I love that. You're like, it's not feeling very well. It can be, <laughs> could it? <laughs> I didn't upset stomach. I don't know what's going on, but I don't feel very well. <laughs> a lot of those interactions are very specialized as well. So I mean, we mentioned each of these little families that are kind of parasitizing a specific thing. Um, but there's also interactions that are going on. You know, how is it that this caterpillar is surviving and eating? Not only is it eating, but something in the wasps that are developing within that caterpillar is, is making the caterpillar essentially just engorge itself, just continual eating. Uh, so there's enough fat reserves and whatnot oh. um, for the survival of the parasitoid. I just learned that from you. I didn't realize that. So another parasitoid that I love that people usually get horrified about are the bee flies. Oh, yeah. You know, those cute little flies that look like bees. The larvae is actually a parasitoid. So the bee flies, if you see them flying over the ground, they're actually looking for solitary bee nesting locations and they will lay their eggs in those. And then when their egg hatches out, they will eat the bee larvae that's developing in those areas. I, I saw videos of bee flies doing that. They will hover directly over the entrance to these solitary bee nests mm-hmm. and they throw their egg like, oh. like playing. Yeah. Like they're playing basketball. <laughs> they they've got to get it to land in the, yeah. it's like they're pooping it out. Poop basketball. Yeah. <laughs> 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 There, there was a parasitoid that everybody was, it was all the rage for gardeners and um, other people. And that was, that is the um, trick of grandma wasp and used to be able to buy like little strips of their eggs and try to set it out in trees and things. And you don't really hear about it so much anymore. Cause I think the phase went away. And from what I understand that you can release them, but it's like releasing a lot of other beneficial insects. If they're naturally going to be abundant, then you'll see them and it will work, but they were also already naturally abundant. And if you release them and that is not going to be the case that year, there's something about the environment or the conditions that are not going to allow them to really survive very well. So just, you know, 
if they're out, they're out. If they're not, you can't force them to be abundant. Yeah. Early 2000s. Yeah. I remember that because everybody, yes. where can I get these? And it's like, oh my God, one, they're so expensive. Two, the timing has to be like just right. And it's, and then they have to like find the host in this magical area. I'm trying to remember, there was an insect that we were having problems with then that everybody was like, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread that they wanted the trichogramma to control. But I can't remember what probably the like was. the oak leaf rollers that were that also around that same oh, time. Oh, I bet that's what it was. Then they weren't the next year. And probably everyone was like, it was because I released yeah. those. No, it's just because they weren't <laughs> out this year. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard with the with with things like that, with field trials in that way to be able to accurately determine because there's so many other variables, like who did, did what you released worked or was it just going to be managed naturally anyway? No way to know. And again, you don't even hear about trichogramma wasps anymore. So it, it was a phase that quickly died. Someone, someone did a really good marketing thing about them and people spent a lot of money on something that probably didn't work so well. But I don't argue with success. I'm sure someone will say, no, I did release them and it worked well. And if it worked for you, it worked for you. But scientifically, there's no reason why you should continue to use them. Talking about that trick of grandma wasp and people releasing things kind of brings up another thing, which is, you know, purchasing predators or even parasitoids and and doing augmentation, releasing these things into, um, into nature and and they either are going to be abundant naturally, or they're probably not. So it's a fun activity, I think, to do, especially if you have a school garden or you have youth that are involved to release ladybugs or other things. But just know that they're likely going to roam. They don't always want to stay put within the confines of your yard. So they are, I always say you could give them to all your neighbors and then they might make their way into your house, but, or into your yard, but they're probably going to take off on their own. So it's a fun activity, but you know, let nature do its thing naturally and let them, let those insects that are already there be abundant by reducing your pesticide use and being aware of what species you actually have on your plants, who's good and who's not. And usually, um, especially like in the case of ladybugs, lacewings and things like that on your plants with small insects like aphids, if you give it a couple days, they will take over and they'll help reduce um, those pests to a level that your plant can now tolerate and bloom, produce fruit or do whatever it is that you have it in the ground to do. So that pretty much wraps it up on parasitoids and and predators. And again, that's really a teaspoon of information about these guys, because there's a lot more to learn about them. And if you like sci-fi stuff, do a little more research on parasitoids and it'll probably blow your mind quite a bit. Cause these are, they're like aliens from outer space pretty much. But thank you for joining us this week for Bugs by the Yard, and we'll catch you next time. Howdy to our listeners and fellow bug nerds. We want to take the time to tell you to check out our show notes on each episode and for more information and supplemental materials on the topics covered. Additionally, if you have any questions or recommendations for what you may want to learn more about, you can send us an email to www.bugsbytheyard at gmail.com. If you enjoy this content and would like to learn more about structural pests that may invade your home, check out our other podcast, Unwanted Guests, brought to you by Texas A&M University AgriLife Extension and the Department of Entomology. As always, please subscribe or follow the podcast feed to make sure you never miss an episode.